Welcome to the Tennessee Achieves podcast, dedicated to and inspired by our students who for over a decade have broken cycles, conquered obstacles, overcome barriers, and exceeded expectations. In turn, our students have also inspired Tennessee Achieves, a nonprofit designed to increase the percentage of Tennessee students earning a college credential. Operating in partnership with Tennessee Promise, Tennessee Achieves works with thousands of high school students each year as they transition to and through college. We believe successful students result in thriving communities. The Tennessee Achieves podcast will share stories of students, their mentors who provide encouragement, and our countless partners who contribute to this movement. Each meant to leave you a bit smarter about transitioning from high school to college and a bit shrewder about navigating college. No one loves Tennessee Achieves more than me. Here we go. Welcome to the Tennessee Achieves podcast. It's an incredible day at Tennessee Achieves. We have two brilliant ladies with us today, researchers who are going to walk us through first their journey to post-secondary, how they landed where they are, but also talk at a high level about research around Promise programs. As many of you may know, Promise programs have really exploded across the country, some community-based, others state-based, and come in all different shapes and sizes. So it'll be fun today to really dig into the research side of this work. Joining me today is Dr. Michelle Miller-Adams. Both of them have incredibly fancy titles. I told them prior to the podcast. Uh, Michelle is is a professor at Grand Valley State University and a senior researcher at the Upjohn Institute, both in Michigan. We also have longtime Tennessee Achieves friend, Dr. Celeste Carruthers, an associate professor of economics at the University of Tennessee, as well as the James and Joanne Ford Faculty Research Fellow. Wow, that was a lot, you two. I'm so excited that you're here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect. Well, we'll kick off and start with Celeste. Uh, Celeste, why don't you walk us through your journey of growing up and how you landed at the University of Tennessee? Sure. I'll try to keep it brief. There's lots of bouncing around and indecision um, going up there. I grew up outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, um, graduated from Garner Senior High School. And I remember floating the idea to my parents of me taking a year off before going to college, and they absolutely shut it down 100%. (laughs) Good parents. Uh, Yes. They said, this is the last thing that we're going to make you do. (laughs) You must go to college this fall. Did they hold true to that? Is that the last thing? That is the last thing that they absolutely made me do. So you're you're on your own after this. Um, And so I was one of these students who was constrained to go in state, but I wanted to get as far away from home as possible. And so I went to Appalachian State University, which I had a strong connection to ever since having visited the campus with my mother for um, through her job. And it was a wonderful school for a student who was kind of indecisive about what they wanted to do. I bounced around between quite a few majors. 
um, and landed with kind of a double major in accounting and economics. Econom- Where did you start? What was the first major? English. Okay. English, because- so that's a, an interesting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's an interesting journey. English. Um, that was my favorite class in high school, and so that's where I thought you know my talents were best suited. Um, I bounced around from English to graphic arts and imaging technology, kind of the technology side of that, less so than the art side of that, because I was not very artistic. Um, and on to accounting and economics. Finally. Why did you Why did you land at accounting and economics? Was it um, What was I, the decision making process? Um, let's see. Hmm. Well, if I'm being honest, I think that I wanted to impress someone that I could take a hard major. And so I took accounting, which at that time was the hardest major that I knew of. And it really was very challenging, but I did pretty well at it. Um, And so went, stuck it out all the way through a tax internship and uh, kind of enjoyed my work there, but didn't really feel at home. So back on campus at Appalachian State University, Um, I started taking some economics classes inspired by, you know, something as simple as some basic marketing in the hallways, like posters about the economics department and how you could double major in economics because it was also in the College of Business where accounting was. Talked to some professors about their kind of grad school experiences and thought that I would try it out. Um, Ultimately took a, what was then called a senior seminar class, which was like an independent research class. Um, And then... This just kind of opened my eyes up to, oh, this is this is what I want to do. This is what I'm meant to do and what I can do well. Research. Research, yes. Answering any question kind of under the sun and doing it in the best way that, you know, data and methods allow you to. That kind of like autonomy and creativity um, was exactly the ticket and what I wanted to do. I uh, love that you're sharing this story because I think you're one of the smartest people I've ever met. I tell you that often. <laughs> and to think that you didn't have it all buttoned up and figured out when you first mm-hmm. landed on the college campus, I think is the story for many students who are told from the very beginning, we need to, we need you to be decided so you can get to and through as quickly as possible. And I always say, you know, give yourself some grace in that space. Yeah, and I'm I'm very grateful that an institution like App State could give me the grace. And I do think it's kind of a privilege that I had though, the capability to just bounce around at one institution and take probably more credits than I needed because I was majoring in a few different colleges before it was all over. Um, so I feel very fortunate to have been at kind of a, a supportive um, institution like that. I feel lucky to have, to have made it out without um, having to really detour and and go on. Well, and then you ultimately landed at something that you're both really great at, but you also really love, which is sort of our hope for every student that comes through the Tennessee Achieves program. Yeah, yeah, I know. I feel very, very grateful. Economics was not something that I would have come out of high school thinking that I was suited for or that I wanted to do, and really only took economics classes because they were kind of convenient. You know, I had to take them to get that accounting degree, and that sort of planted the seed that I came back to later. I love that. So from App State, walk us through graduate school directly after, or did you wait a bit? Um, Directly after. So directly after, I went to um, the University of New Hampshire to, uh, this this is one of the only places where you could kind of get a terminal master's degree in economics. Usually graduate programs in economics are kind of intended to culminate with a PhD. And though they offered a PhD at UNH, 
Um, they had a very strong and robust master's program. So you could just go there for a year, get a master's and go on with your life. And so I thought that this would be a good way to test the waters of graduate school. And if it didn't fit, then I could kind of bail and go to work with a master's. So but, what were you thinking at that point that you wanted to do when you grow up? Like, what did you at this point, like, so I'll get this master's and then I will be a... I thought that I would go into data analysis, honestly, because that's what I had really kind of enjoyed as part of my um, senior seminar class at Appalachian State and the creativity and the kind of, um, I don't know, intellectual challenges that came with data analysis. So I thought that that's that's the hazy direction that I had in mind. And that is ultimately what I ended up doing. Um, By October of that year at New Hampshire, I was convinced that I wanted to go to graduate school Mm. and started applying to, to further graduate school. So started applying to PhD programs and ended up at the University of Florida, where I did indeed do a lot of data analysis and continue to this day to do... <laughs> I was going to say, you now do a lot of data analysis. Yep, yep that's yeah. right. So Florida, um, PhD, and then straight into the University of Tennessee? Yeah, University of Tennessee was my faculty job straight out of grad school. Um, I've been here since 2009. It was a very kind of tricky and scary job market year because it was 2008-9 was the um, onset of the Great Recession and a lot of academic jobs were um, getting canceled. So the American Economic Association, the association that kind of organizes the job market for junior economists, um, created a special webpage for all of the job listings that were being canceled. So we would, <laughs> we would nervously- That is terrifying. Yeah, thanks guys. We would nervously refresh that page if we hadn't heard back from a particular job. Um, So I applied to well over 100 places. Wow. Yeah. Was um, uh, ultimately pretty happy to have a few options kind of in the southeast. So um, right close to where I grew up and the University of Tennessee just just felt right in the same way that that old kind of senior seminar class felt right in the same way that App State felt right. My visit to the University of Tennessee just felt like this would be home. I love that. What a fun journey. It's scary at times, but uh, <laughs> yeah, feel, feel you know, privileged along the way with the different kind of resources and supports and options that I had. So Michelle, you're a political scientist, which I love. And we often talk about my political nerdiness on the podcast. So I love to have a fellow uh, political science nerd. I, I, I mean that in the most endearing way. I hope you know. Uh, but walk us through your journey. Right. I didn't start out as a political science nerd, but I became one. Uh, so I grew up in suburban Los Angeles uh, at a time when the University of California was still a very inexpensive place to go in the 1970s uh, before um, dramatic property tax cutbacks in California led to really sharp tuition rise uh, increases. So for a, a middle-class kid who was a decent student and wasn't quite sure what she was interested in, the University of California was my choice. I went to the University of California in Santa Barbara. I loved living at the beach. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I took a bunch of classes in fields that I thought I was interested in, and I wound up becoming a history major as an undergraduate. I took some political science. I liked it, but I liked history better. And um, when I left college, uh, I 
really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I made in what in retrospect was a mistake, which is I decided to go right on to graduate school, Mm. even though I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to go to the East Coast because I had spent a semester in Washington, D.C., Uh, as a junior in college, and I had really, really loved it. What were you doing during your time in D.C.? uh, I worked for uh, Common Cause, which was kind of a a popular internship opportunity, but I was mainly just figuring out what it was like to live in the culture of the East Coast rather than the West Coast, and it seemed like a better better fit for me. Hmm. So I looked at schools on the East Coast, and I knew I was interested in international relations, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, and I wound up uh, going to Columbia University to the School of International and Public Affairs and getting, again, like a terminal, what they call a terminal master's degree, a two-year master's degree in international affairs. So and similar to Celeste, what did you think you really wanted to pursue? Like when you grew up with I, this master's degree, I will live on the East Coast, obviously, and do... To be quite honest, I had no idea. Still had no idea. And that was why I think it was a mistake for me to go right on to graduate school, which is something I tell my students now all the time. Unless you know (laughs) what you want to do, don't go to grad school. Good advice. Figure it out. And my undergrad education had been really uh, inexpensive. Uh, My tuition at the time was less than $1,000 a year. Uh, My very middle class family could just write a check for that and send a couple of kids through college. Um, by that would be about three thousand dollars a year now, and and by way of comparison, the University of California tuition now is upwards of fourteen thousand dollars a year. It tells you a little bit about Significant the rising cost of college. Right. But when I went to Columbia, things got expensive, so I you know had some student debt, and I like Celeste, I graduated into a really uh, tough. Uh, job market. It was a lot earlier because I'm a lot older than Celeste. It was 1982 and there was a recession going on. (laughs) Uh, And it was really hard to find a job. And I was caught in the, well, you don't have any serious work experience. Well, that's what I'm trying to get. How will I get any of that unless you'll hire me? So I did a lot of uh, networking. Um, It was a little stressful. And I wound up in a job that I knew was not the job I wanted to do, but it gave me some really valuable experience. I worked for the city of New York uh, for the audit division in the Department of Finance. That was my first job. But I rapidly... And that wasn't your dream job. It was not my dream job. And you were not the boss? I was... No, I was so far from the boss. (laughs) I talk to students all the time who anticipate graduating from college, right? And immediately stepping into their dream job, and to your point, with very little experience. So... Again, sharing this wisdom with them right. that you weren't suddenly the boss and you didn't find your dream job even right. after a master's degree from Columbia. Right. I was the opposite of the boss. But I knew <laughs> I wanted to work in something that was internationally oriented. So I really kept networking. Can't say enough about networking. Almost every job I've gotten, with the one exception being my teaching job at Grand Valley State, uh, Grand Valley State University, is um, I've gotten all those jobs through Uh, networks through people I knew and people they knew and working that network. So I navigated my way back to a very small, holding on by the skin of its teeth, consulting firm that did very interesting work uh, in international consulting, kind of uh, economic consulting. Uh, And then I had a weird opportunity to go to work for one of their clients and basically have two jobs. I worked for the consulting firm and I worked for this gentleman who worked at a research agency, research 
arm of a major investment bank on Wall Street. And I still have um, stress dreams about that era because I had you know, two bosses and two offices and two phone numbers and two business cards. And it was a very novel experiment that I never uh, wanted to repeat. But I wound up going to work at the investment bank in, um, as a, a research analyst looking at um, bond issuers that were foreign countries and international institutions. I got really interested in international institutions. I got really uninterested in working on Wall Street, and I transitioned again through a personal network to work for a foundation in New York. And then I went back to Columbia, this time knowing what I wanted to do, and got a PhD in international relations. Um, as I was finishing up that experience, um, a personal relationship, the person I ended up marrying, uh, uh, basically required a move to Michigan. So I wound up in Kalamazoo, Michigan with a PhD in international relations, <laughs> and um, I wasn't able to follow my original plan sure. for using it in New York. And I thought, hmm, maybe I should try this teaching thing. And it turned out that the university we were located at needed an adjunct professor of political science. And I was 30, <clears throat> 35. I'd never been in front of a group of students before. I had never taught through grad school because I had been working at that time. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I wound up in front of a class. So uh, I started teaching. I taught as an adjunct professor uh, at two institutions in a variety of non-tenure track positions. Um, I loved teaching. I was good at it. It was a good fit for me. It turns out I'd kind of been teaching all along in my various other jobs. Um, but the adjunct life is a really tough life. And I finally just said, this has to stop. And I looked in a commutable circle around where I lived and I found a tenure track job at Grand Valley State. And I've been there for uh, 15 years. But at the same time, right around that time, the Kalamazoo Promise was announced in Kalamazoo in the fall of 2005, right when I was applying for this tenure track teaching job. And I had written a book about uh, asset-based strategies for fighting poverty previously uh, during all those years of adjunct teaching. And um, this struck me immediately as an asset-based policy. And by that, I mean a, a, a strategy that both enables individuals to increase their human capital while at the same time helping communities and school districts increase their value as well. So it has kind of this private face and this public face, which is a characteristic of an asset-based policy. So I decided to write a book about that. And through some more networking, I wound <laughs> up at the Upjohn Institute, which is a research institute in Kalamazoo, filled with people like Celeste, who work mainly with data, PhD economists. And um, they agreed to have me come in as with a very different perspective as a political scientist interested in how the community was going to respond to this really unprecedented program. Nothing like this had existed. So I joined the Institute to write a book about the Kalamazoo Promise, the early days of it, its origins and its initial impact. And I did that. And then that led, I was just incredibly lucky to be there at that time with my set of interests in this particular development, because it led me down this path of the past 15 years, where I have really spent the last 15 years following the um, evolution of this free college movement. And I've now followed it to Tennessee, which is where I am. So that's an incredible journey. So you've really been with the Kalamazoo Promise since inception in many ways. Yeah, I was, I joined the Upjohn Institute six weeks after the Kalamazoo Promise was announced. And the work has changed a lot because while initially we were trying to figure out what this thing was, this place-based scholarship, 
that was different from other scholarships that had come before. Um, after a few years, as other communities, including Knoxville, replicated elements of the promise, we started looking a lot farther afield at uh, other communities and how they were innovating in their own local context around this basic model. And so we've really come, I've really come to kind of have a pretty high level view of the promise movement, both at the state and the local level. So it's gone kind of, I, I think, you know, I've been influential in shaping the ideas around what you should look at when you think about the impact of these programs and maybe how you sort these programs into different categories. So those kinds of political science-y tasks uh, rather than the specific data analysis of the type that Celeste does. That's fantastic. And we were talking earlier this morning about how, especially in the early days, people knew about the Kalamazoo Promise, but it really has become sort of a North Star in many ways for Promise programs. Why don't you walk us through exactly what is the Kalamazoo Promise and what it does offer students? Because it, it's an incredible program. Yeah, I kind of sometimes call it the, the Promise on Steroids. It's about the most intensive um, promise type scholarship that there is, with, with one exception, uh, which is we mentioned earlier, the El Dorado Promise, which is much smaller, but actually even a little, little more generous in some ways, a little more flexible. So the Kalamazoo Promise is awarded to students who have attended uh, and been resident of the Kalamazoo Public Schools District for at least four years. This is a, a high poverty urban school district with um, some racial diversity. It's a uh, largely a non-white school district, but about 40% of the students who attended are white. It has a 70% free and reduced lunch rate. So it's poverty school district, high poverty school district in the urban core of our region. Uh, if you spend kindergarten through 12th grade in Kalamazoo, and you graduate uh, and you have lived in the district, um, you will get your tuition and fees covered uh, at any one of 59 institutions in Michigan, both public and private, ranging from the local community college to the University of Michigan and my own university, everything in between. So very um, different from the Tennessee Promise yes. and the fact that Promise is really focused on community and technical <clears throat> colleges. We do have four-year institutions, right. but it is focused on the associate's degree piece. Right. Kalamazoo Promise says it has a 59 four year, regardless. Yeah. There is a four-year option, and the, the most you can get from the Kalamazoo Promise is a bachelor's degree or 130 credits, whichever comes first. But another really two, three other really important things about the Kalamazoo Promise that make it this Kalamazoo Promise on steroids. It's awarded on a first-dollar basis, meaning mm -hmm. before you get your other forms of financial aid. So if you are low-income and you do qualify for Pell Grants, you get to add those on top of your tuition scholarship, which helps you with living expenses, as we all know, which are a big part of your college costs. You also have 10 years after high school graduation to use your scholarship, which means that if you get a certificate or an associate's degree and you go work for a while and you decide to go back, you're very likely to still have eligibility. We have a lot of students who've stopped out without completing a degree. And the good news is they, many of them still have money if they are able to go back and if we're able to help Which is them. just incredible, really. Yeah. I mean, the logistics of that is someone that runs the logistics. <laughs> really hard. Right? I think like my head explodes just thinking about all that tracking. But yeah. for the student, man, that's For the amazing. student, it's fantastic. Celeste is over here, though, shaking her head, too, because for evaluators and researchers, it's really, really hard because students can come in and out of the program. They have this 10-year time frame. 
college completion is normally measured on a six-year basis. We have 10 years. So then the third thing that makes it the promise on steroids is that it is set up um, in our community to continue in perpetuity, which means that um, the funding is going to be there and the community can really orient itself, align itself around the promise that this resource will be there for the long term. So if people come to the community with children or planning to have children or babies, they may come because of the Kalamazoo promise, which 20 years later may be sending their kids to college. And it's an it's an angel donor, right? Am I correct yeah, in that? Yeah, it's a group of oh, group. local donors who have um, chosen to remain anonymous and have in fact remained anonymous for 60 yeah, years. Yeah, I, I don't even which know. Is I mean, there's a I lot of myth around. I don't know right? who they are either. There's really only, you know, one or two people who say, who are the, 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 the go-betweens with the donors. Um, perhaps the most remarkable thing about the Kalamazoo Promise is the anonymous donors have remained anonymous for 16 years. They're quite serious about staying anonymous. How incredible is that, right? Like no credit, no ego. We just want to do what's right by this community. I think that's amazing. And I think they also didn't want to be bothered with the um, details of running the program or also hit up for money for other things or also- Why just Kalamazoo? Why not? Because you said there- Why not the private school? Nine school districts within- within, So, you know, I I could see that there's some beauty. They made a very intentional choice to focus only on the public school districts serving the urban core. Charter schools are not included. And in fact, charter schools have not really taken hold in, in Kalamazoo as a result of that. But there would be a lot of people lobbying them for changing the rules. But then I think, you know, we have a long tradition of anonymous philanthropy in Kalamazoo, so it's very much of a piece with that. But I think a big part of it is they wanted to kind of put the money on the table. All they pay for is the scholarship. They didn't give any money to the schools. They didn't give any money to people to evaluate or collect data. The idea is if that happened, would the rest of the community step up? Could alignment be created among all the other people who hold a piece of the success puzzle? I love it. So Celeste, talk to me about when you first stepped into this sort of education policy space. I feel like we met maybe in 2010, 11. It feels like a long, we've known each other a long time, but Number one, what interested you in studying this particular space? And then talk about those early days of beginning uh, to evaluate then Knox achieves. Sure. Um, I think I had been doing a little work around financial aid research with colleague Don Bruce, who was also at the Boyd Center at the University of Tennessee. Um, and at some point or another, I saw Randy Boyd give a speech about some of the various educational initiatives that were happening around Knoxville and East Tennessee. And so I don't remember the context of this talk. It was a relatively small room, but the, the topics that he touched on were like um, junior achievement and community schools and something they called Knox Achieves, which he kind of traced out the, the history and origin story of. And since I was just getting into financial aid research, I thought this would be a really interesting thing to study. And so through my colleagues at the Boyd Center, we approached what was then known as Tennessee Achieves and your group, that's probably where we met, and suggested that we study the effect that access to Knox Achieves had on later college going, which was as, as much as we could look at at that point, enough time had passed to assess like if this affected whether and where students went to college. 
and 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 that was that was how we got started in that. Um, uh, results from that initial study were really really interesting, and um, kind of suggested that introducing Knox Achieves and this kind of last dollar free community college program in the community had a sizable effect on the likelihood that kind of a student in Knox County Schools went to college at all, um, and particularly drove a lot of students to go to two-year community colleges. So some of those students uh, appeared to, since, since the overall share of students going to any college went up quite a lot, it would suggest that a lot of students are choosing to go to a two-year college rather than go straight to work, go to the military, or kind of do something else. And there was also kind of a margin where some students were starting in a two-year school rather than a four-year school that we kind of picked up on. And um, not too long after we initiated the study of the Tennessee Achieves model and kind of in, in partnership with other kind of promised programs around the state, particularly the kind of Ayers Foundation Scholars Program, right. um, became Tennessee Promise uh, really fast, <laughs> at least in, in in my view from the sidelines, it seemed to happen uh, really fast. Fast for me as well, okay. being deeply entrenched in it. So we share that sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden this this model had gone statewide and our our little study of kind of one county was was like, you know, being circulated among decision makers, you know, before um, before like the media even knew about it. So I I think in grad school, my my fear was that um, the education policy research that I would do would like not, um, you know, that I wouldn't have like access to new ideas or access to the right data to pull off those ideas. And that at the end of the day, wouldn't have an effect or any influence on education policy. And, and that, that, (laughs) Uh, turned out to not be true at all. Year four at yeah. UT, really, right? <laughs> I mean, it was very quick that we turned the program around. So if you landed at UT in 09 and mm-hmm. we started talking about launching Tennessee Promise in 13, um, I think, yeah, it was a really quick turnaround. Yeah. And I was kind of at the, the right time and the right place to study that and kind of track the program as it went statewide. Um, and it's it's been a real ride. And and I, I still feel like I'm on the sidelines, so I'm sure that others like closer to the action, it's been even more of a ride. Great. Any surprises that you found in the data thus far as you're, you're thinking, I know we come to you often with questions that we would like to have studied. I think uh, it's always been a gift to the program that we do have this partnership that it's not only our data that we're putting out into the universe, but also data that has um, you know, the stamp of approval from the Boyd Institute. Any surprises, anything that's jumped out to you thus far? Um, so something that that I, I always sort of remark on is that although our studies on the Knox Achieves program are really kind of interesting because a lot of what happened with Knox Achieves seems to have happened a few years later with Tennessee Promise in terms of like higher college going rates, um, a big bump in enrollment in two-year schools, some shifting away from starting at four-year schools to stu- two-year schools. Like a lot of that also happened at Tennessee Promise. But Tennessee Promise, it definitely had its own distinct kind of effect on the conversation and um may have quantitatively had like a bigger effect on student decisions and have when when it was kind of amplified with this statewide um, megaphone. Like it wasn't until Tennessee Promise was around that I heard my 
kind of neighbors and kind of people around Knoxville talking about free community college when you know, Knox Chiefs had been around since 2009 and actually had a decent participation rate up until that point. I was sharing that with Michelle earlier when I tell people even now, like, oh, I, I run a nonprofit called Tennessee Achieves. People have no idea what that is. But I say, we operate the Tennessee Promise. Everyone knows the Tennessee Promise, which is its own phenomenon in and of itself. Yeah, it was the, the first state um, since, as far as I know, California in the 1960s that kind of committed to making at least some part of the college um, uh, kind of options tuition-free for any student going straight to college at a high school, um, which was, I mean, that's, that, that's a pretty big deal. And it, it, um, it really resonated. And you see that with a lot of other state initiatives that kind of have their own take on free community college or free college in one way or another. But Tennessee was really kind of the impetus for this statewide movement uh, towards tuition waivers. Michelle, did you see similar effects when the Kalamazoo Promise was launched? Yes, and I I wanted to just uh, piggyback on what Celeste just said, that a really important aspect of these programs, if you want to get wide usage and buy-in and awareness and all of that, is simplicity. Both the Tennessee Promise and the Kalamazoo Promise, which are two very different programs, have that going for them. You can explain the terms of the program in a couple of sentences. And, you know, I worry about, as I watch these statewide programs roll out in other places, many of them have chosen, often for, you know, sound reasons, but they've opted to make their programs more complicated, more limited, harder to message about. And as a result, they're seeing very low rates of uptake and sometimes even having to change the program because no one is using it. So it seems to me that um, Tennessee had a couple of huge advantages. One is they started small and grew the program and incorporated the lessons that they learned along the way. They also, from the beginning, had people looking at the data and doing evaluation. And so really it was a very... um, process that was really driven by knowledge and, and real findings. Um, it, it's, it's sometimes kind of shocking to me how many resources are being devoted to the free college movement without much evidence behind it. And that's simply because uh, the programs themselves have concentrated their spending on scholarships. And um, there really has been underinvestment in research and evaluation. So you were lucky to find the right professor who had moved to uh, to Knoxville at exactly the right time. And in Kalamazoo, I think the presence of the Upjohn Institute there, which is uh, runs largely, uh, research activities run largely off an endowment that was created many decades ago in the last century, um, has been an advantage as well because we've been able to play this third-party evaluation function. But the combination of having data and evaluation and then having a very simple message that resonates with people, creates a lot of buy-in and awareness about the program. There are other programs where if you went out into the community, they might be rather generous programs, but they're more complicated. They have more rules. They have more requirements. They haven't messaged effectively. The broad public doesn't know even that they exist, kind of like what you were saying with Knox Achieves. Yeah, I think that is the beauty of really, I mean, I think about from my perspective, walking into a a crowded gymnasium full of high school seniors, the message is incredibly simple, right? Everyone here has the opportunity to earn a post-secondary credential. I mean, it, it is like a, it changed conversations around kitchen tables. It changed the way 
when we, I think about when we first launched Knox Achieves and the number of students that came to the program, all our target student, um, but it was very small in comparison now to nearly every high school senior meeting the application deadline for the Tennessee Promise. So certainly a movement. Would you say in Kalamazoo that's true as well? It's become sort of a movement. It's so ingrained in the culture. It's just what you do. Yes, it's um, it's it's different, of course, because it's restricted to this one school district right. that sits at the center of the region. But if you're in that school district you know about it, you talk about it, you hear about it from from early days. Um, And it has also helped, I think, I mean, at least recruiters and realtors tell me it's helped a lot with putting Kalamazoo on the map. People are attracted to Kalamazoo in part by the Kalamazoo promise, even if they don't have children or even if they move to the region and don't settle within the Kalamazoo Public School District because it's a signal that this is a community that's investing in its young people mm. and that values education. And that's the kind of community that a lot of people want to live in, whether they have kids or not. So it has a different impact. Um, I will say, though, that even with these simple programs, and I'm sure you see this too where you sit, you know, the, fi- the fine print is your enemy. There are Absolutely. still a lot of questions. There's still confusion. There are still appeals. There's still complexity, even in a very simply structured program. So. Um, you know, we see programs that are much more complicated and it's just a whole lot harder to explain them to families and to community members. Yeah. I mean, we're dealing with humans, right? I mean, it, it just, every student has their own story. Every student is coming from a different place, but the role that I feel like, uh, particularly Celeste played in the evolution of, and ultimately the launch of Tennessee Promise was really demystifying many myths around the type of student that Promise was designed to serve. So it is universal. But um, when you think about a student with uh, 16 on the ACT, right, we had data to support that that student could also be successful. I'd love for both of you just to comment on um, what do you think the next step in this movement is? What do you see coming for Promise programs? On the research side, um, now that Promise programs um, kind of uh, sponsored by states, so state level Promise programs and free community and free college programs are proliferating, I think the next step for research is to kind of look across all these different types of programs with different design features and different settings and different contexts and kind of being sensitive to all of those differences and particularly the different contexts. Um, I think. Next steps are to kind of understand which design features kind of help students. So is the kind of mentoring aspect important everywhere and for every student? And, and why is that? Um, are, you know, where some, some programs can kind of afford to be more generous than others. Like where is the, where is the need greatest? There's still a lot of need left after tuition. And where is the need greatest and kind of where can additional resources be targeted to help students succeed. So in terms of where research is going, I think it taking kind of a more nationwide look um, and looking across programs is is where is is where we need to go next. Right. And the Boyd student the Boyd Institute is taking um, a look now at Knox Promise. So it's a sort of a full circle moment for us as we're lifting up a new pilot program to do a deep dive into what's the more that is oftentimes needed for for students. So I can't wait to see sort of what this produces. What about you, Michelle? 
Well, there, there are a couple of things, and, and Celeste has suggested some of them already. I mean, we know one thing we have definitely learned from the Promise Movement, which, by the way, is very hard to study because there's such diversity of program models, both at the local and the state level. So it is a very interesting but challenging space to do research in. Um, but what we do know is uh, we know that money is not enough to ensure student success. So a variety of different approaches. Could you just say that again? I, I'll I say that, that again. Yes. So I can say that all day long. Money <laughs> is not enough. Money alone is not enough. Money is important. Sure. And we do see effects in uh, BA attainment uh, for students who didn't have enough money to go to four-year universities before in the Kalamazoo Promise, and now they do. So money matters, but it's not the only thing to ensure success, particularly for low-income and first-generation college goers. But there have been a variety of different types of support uh, programs piloted, including the mentorship model that's in place here. Um, many places have worked on what's sometimes called intrusive coaching models that works closely with incoming college students in a community college setting to help them do a variety of things. We're so, doing that here. Yes. Yeah. And so a lot more work. So that's just absolutely right. A lot more research needs to be done on those models. Um, I also have a, a special interest in trying to help um, strengthen program design and make sure that um, stakeholders and promise programs understand how these structural decisions they make about the design of the program are going to shape the outcome. That sounds like a very simple thing, but it actually is not very clearly understood. And I, I feel like in my own research, I'm working on a book right now, people come to this promise idea sometimes because they're worried about the affordability of college, sometimes because they're worried about equity, sometimes they're worried about workforce readiness. And those three different rationales really require um, different program designs. And there's very little thinking about how to connect those design decisions with these outcomes. And then finally, I have to mention a project that both Celeste and I are involved in, which is that the Upjohn Institute uh, received a grant from a large foundation called the Strata Education Network to do the first rigorous research into the workforce outcomes of Promise programs. So we are working with researchers from four communities, including um, Celeste working on the Knox Achieves issues, issue and in Kalamazoo Promise, the Kalamazoo Promise, to see what happens to students 10 years after they graduate from high school. What are their workforce outcomes? Are they more or less likely to be employed? In what kinds of jobs? What's their debt load? Did they decide to stay in the local community? We don't have answers yet, but I did want to just preview that research. And there will be answers available, we hope, by the end of this year. I have a board member that's been asking for this data since year three. So I can tell you I'm so excited uh, to get this uh, on their radar, but also sort of out in the public. Like, how? what is this doing for communities? What is What kind of individual impact is this making? on students and families, so thanks. Well, this is the part that we do with everyone. Um, it's sort of a three question, get to know you ending to all the podcasts. So my first question for both of you, what's your favorite class you've ever taken? All right, uh, tough one. Um, I, I, I have to choose two. One was high school English, and this is where I kind of was, was it allowed to be like more creative than I had been in other classes. So kind of an introduction to creativity, which has been a, a persistent theme in everything I've done since then. It's like when I can be creative, I'm, I'm happy and productive. Uh, the second class would be Calculus 2 at Appalachian State, which is where I discovered- Said no one else ever on <laughs> said, the planet, Celeste. <laughs> said no, 
<laughs> but this was transformative because up until that point, I didn't think I was a math person. But calculus is not regular math. It is um, not. Calculus yes. is very different. It's abstract. It actually suited me much better than I thought. And I had to take it to go to um, graduate school in economics. And so this was kind of this plus, so math, data plus creativity is, is what I do now. And I, I try, to, um, try to fight against any tendency for students to sort themselves into math, per math person or not math person buckets, because you just don't know until you know, you've taken math beyond you know, the basics. I started off as a math major, and so I understand, loved calculus as well. But I'm terrible at, like, you know, accounting. So anyway, math. So I think my favorite uh, college course, or I'll even uh, follow Celestia and pick two of them, really attests to the importance of uh, getting a liberal arts uh, education, because my two favorite courses had nothing to do with my major or the field in which I got my PhD. Uh, they, I both took them both in college as part of a general education distribution requirement. One of them was called Shakespeare on Film and Stage. And I had this, you know, really dynamic British Shakespeare scholar as a professor, and we basically read plays and then watched movie and theater versions of them. So and fun. it has stayed with me all this time. And then, um, a music appreciation class I took as well, where we looked at major works of music. Uh, you know, I hear that music now, and I still remember 40 years later uh, studying that piece of music. So big fan of gen ed requirements that push students beyond uh, what they might normally choose to, to study. I love that. Okay, so second question, favorite book. I had to have a favorite book of right now. So you can also just say favorite book right now if you don't have one of all time. Okay, favorite book right now. So last year, um, I tried to use my phone a lot less than I had been. Um, I've since fallen off the wagon. But <laughs> for three or four months there, I was great. My screen time was like 30 minutes a day. And in order to fill up that um, kind of... Um, time when I needed to, you know, have my mind on something else, I read for the first time ever the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, wow. And so now I get so much more about culture. <laughs> like All of the memes make sense now. Right. So please read Lord of the Rings if you haven't. <laughs> That's great. Okay. I promise I'm not pandering just because I'm in Tennessee, but just last week I finished an amazing book by Ann Patchett. Who, oh wow! Uh, is yeah. her it's her new book called The Dutch House. I haven't and read I, that one yet, but I've heard it's, it's fantastic. Amazing. I think it's really. I mean, it's the. I can't say it's the best book she's written. It's the book she's written that I really enjoyed the most. And um, yeah, I hope I'm going to Nashville tomorrow. I was going to say you should stop by. visit the bookstore. That's my plan. You should so. talk to Amy about that because okay. she's been. Yeah, okay, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's great. Okay, finally, if you could have coffee with anyone, who would it be? This was like impossible for me. I know, this is hard. Um, someone that comes to mind is John Dewey, who's an educational philosopher in the 20th century. I've been reading some of his work lately because I'm writing and researching on the history of vocational education, and he had lots of thoughts on this and on kind of education and modes of education in general. And I'd, I'd love to get his thoughts on kind of where we ended up 100 years since he was kind of writing about these things. That's awesome. I love John Dewey, too. That's a great choice. Uh, I would like to have coffee with the anonymous donors to the Kalamazoo <laughs> Promise because I have a lot of questions for them. And I, I can't ask them. So I always try to figure out what they think just uh, from the outside. So. That's great. 
Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. I'm so thankful for the work that you do. It informs our programs. It helps us to change and evaluate what we're doing. So thanks to you both. Uh, and I look forward to a continued partnership. Thank you, Chrissy. Thank you.